This is the Education Gadfly Show. Once the robots take all our jobs, it's all moot anyway, so what, what do we have? A decade or two to figure this out? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Josh Boots. Welcome, Josh. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on. Also joining us, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Hello, David. Uh, Josh is the founder and executive director of Empower K-12. Josh, let's start by having you tell us what the heck Empower K-12 is. Great question. Uh, Empower K-12, we're a DC-based nonprofit, and we're just dedicated to ensuring that education leaders and teachers support organizations, policymakers uh-huh. have the right information, relevant skills, and the processes to continuously improve. Yeah. All right. That, uh, that's easy. Piece of cake. Wow. No problem. I mean, Remind wow. us, yeah. tangibly, that means that we like do things like build data warehouses, create uh-huh. data dashboards. Okay. Um, but then we also do a lot of like processing of the publicly available information uh-huh. to identify like what are schools that are doing particularly well with particular groups of students, like students who are most at risk yeah. and at risk with disabilities? Okay, I like it. Working across both DCPS and the charter schools yes. in the district? Okay. Mm-hmm. And where remind me of your background, Josh. Were you doing this work in one of the systems before this? I started as a seventh grade math teacher for DC public schools yeah. at High and Junior High, which yeah. is uh-huh. at Easter Market and now is at Trader Joe's. Okay. Um, yeah. But from, welcome to DC. That's uh, yes. That's from there, trans- strangely appropriate. Yeah, I transitioned into research and development from uh, with a nonprofit that did teacher certification. Yeah, and then uh, was Kip DC's first director of data. Okay, so Mr. Data, I love it. Josh participated in uh, in our great competition a few years ago around ESSA accountability systems. Yeah. One of my favorite events ever. And I'm pretty sure we crushed it and won, even though that wasn't what... Oh, Josh, the, <laughs> still, still bitter about the judges' decision I'm pretty uh, decision sure in like that. five years, we're going to be like, we wish we had Josh's yeah. plan. I know, I hear you. It was good. It's a very good plan. People should check it out. And Empower K-12, by the way, reminds me of Empower America. You guys probably don't remember that. That was the think tank, the Bill Bennett, Jack Kemp, one other person think tank back in like the 90s, the a do tank, as they used to call it. Thinking about it, because we've got Bill Bennett speaking this week, uh, our very last Education 2020 session. And ah, those days that back when basically Bill Bennett would decide to write something about education, uh, he would have his his person call me uh, and I would have Checker write it. And that's how things went. And, uh, and you know, I had a great me. middle school experience, Mike. <laughs> back so, in the yeah. 90s. Thank you. All you right. were still doing I'm things on myself. typewriters. Back uh, you joke, but it uh, wasn't far from it. Okay, but we are blathering on too much. Let's do it in Ed Reform Update. Okay, so Josh, here's a question we want to get into. You, you do all this work with data with schools, helping them understand data coming from test scores. Uh, there's a lot of feeling right now that schools are too focused on tests, even though under ESSA, there's arguably less focus on testing than there used to be. I mean, the accountability regimes in most places around the country are actually pretty light touch. I mean, you know, maybe you know, we'll, we'll report the data. Maybe we'll put out some summative grade. Maybe you'll be on some list uh, of in need of improvement if you're particularly low performing. Uh, but, you know, the risk of actually getting shut down is pretty minimal in most places outside the charter sector. You know, the, there's no more, there's no child left behind stuff on having to have public school choice or tutoring. All that said, you go out around the country, my experience is, and, and educators are like, what? I, I didn't get the message that we don't have to stress out about the tests anymore. We're still stressed out about the tests. 
And so I'm curious in your work with the schools, and I suspect many of these are some of the lower performing schools. Do you know, is it fair? Can you say with a straight face to them, look, if you just focus on good teaching and learning, the test scores will take care of themselves? Or is, am I being a little bit naive on that front? I think that's exactly what most of the schools that are doing really well in DC are doing. We, yeah. Is that right? That, that they just, they don't worry about the test. They focus on good teaching and learning. It's really about the process that they take to ensuring that they're giving high quality teaching and learning. Okay. It isn't just that like that they're just doing stuff. It's the process with which they do that. Okay. Um, and I can maybe give you a couple examples. So well, one thing, we're very thankful that the DC State Education Agency has made a lot of data available related to their new state report card. They've actually run the data at for different disabilities. Um, they've run the data for like at-risk students with disabilities. So we can really mm-hmm. look at what are schools that are doing really well with certain different types of student groups that are traditionally disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go out and we actually learn from those schools. And when we go meet with those teachers and those school leaders, mm-hmm. the things that we learn are, they are data-driven but they don't necessarily know that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so their process is like that they use information to on like a daily basis or a weekly basis Mm -hmm. or quarterly basis to look at what choices they've made and whether they're working and when they're not working, they change them. Interesting. No, I, I, this sounds so logical. Oh my God, you're giving us faith again and and hope that maybe (laughs) this whole thing is okay. So let's talk more. Like what kinds of choices are we talking about? Curriculum? What? Curriculum, just for example, we were just at a school in D.C. Um, yesterday learning about what they do, what, what was their magic sauce. And yeah. they said that, well, we use information constantly. So like on a weekly basis, but they do it in manageable chunks. And I think the word that they used was intentionality. Okay. So like they will focus on one skill for the week and then collect student work related to that skill okay. and then share it with their grade level team. And the grade level team will look at the data from all the students. And mm-hmm. then they together make a decision of like, did all the students learn this skill? Okay. And if there's a particular skill that there's a deficit for a particular student, that they will literally move that student from one classroom to the next just to get, because that teacher, that other teacher is a much better educator of that skill so mm-hmm. that they make sure that they are recovering what they may have not gained in that last week, mm-hmm. the week before. Wow. That's impressive. That is impressive. I'm so impressive. I'm slightly skeptical, to be totally honest. Like, yeah. you're, you're telling me that on a weekly basis, they're moving kids back and forth between classes? Yep. And they said that I asked them about that, and they said that they make sure that the students themselves know that that's just part of the process. Mm-hmm. And it is even possible that they move like a third grader to a fourth grade classroom temporarily just because that teacher is really good at teaching that particular skill, whether it's yeah. reading or math or mm-hmm. science or social emotional. Yeah. Are we talking about, uh, in this particular case, elementary school? It was a education campus, so they pre-K eight. Okay. No, that's interesting. No, I mean, I, I agree, David. I mean, it sounds like Nirvana. Like, you know, it's very individualized and focused on an individual kid. And, and that the teachers are coming at this, by the way, with very little ego. Like, I mean, this seems like this could be threatening if you're looking at student work together, let's say, and it's clear that one teacher's uh, students, you know, as a whole, just did not get something as well as other, that the quality of the work is much lower. That could, I would think that could feel threatening to people. I mean, managing that would be hard, but this school seems to be doing it. Yes. I think that the, it started with, with the school leader in this particular case, yeah. that like they, the school leader has made an atmosphere that we can make mistakes and it's okay. Yeah. That 
students can make mistakes and it's okay, that teachers can make mistakes and it's okay, and that everyone has to learn everything every week Mm -hmm. because we will find a way to make sure that we get that skill deficit covered next week. Mm -hmm. When you're out there, I I am curious, a little bit of a side, how do do schools deal with the fact that I assume kids are at different levels and different skill levels and you want to get everybody to grade level, but you also want to allow, say, the higher achieving kids a chance to keep going and not kind of wait for everybody else to catch up. How do they handle that? Well, I've seen at times where they literally will move kids up a grade level. Yeah. Yeah. For a particular skill set. Um, another strategy that I've seen is looping students with particular teacher, like an, at the elementary level. Yeah. Like if a, if a teacher's done a really great job with a particular set of students, they will loop them with the same teacher so that the new, they know exactly where they're at yeah. in the fall. Okay. And move them forward at a faster yeah, pace. Yeah. Cool. Oh, go ahead, David. I was just going to ask, I mean, a more subject specific question. You know, here at Fordham, Robert Pondicio has fulminated against, you know, teaching for reading in particular. I mean, have you noticed? Teaching what? Sorry. Yeah, just teaching to the test. Teaching to the test. Right, Right. yeah. I mean, do you find that data is more, I mean, we have to get specific at some point, right? Like, is it more helpful for math than reading? Or, Or what's the sort of right unit of analysis here that we should be thinking about? The data from tests or like the data that you get from exit tickets and from lessons and homework. See, that's interesting. I mean, what you're talking about here, when when I hear data, I am assuming that we're talking about some kind of a test, but that's not what you're saying in these schools, that that they are actually can be looking at samples of student work, which could is not standardized. This could just be, you know, all the fifth grade teachers asked a similar question on the end of unit exam, and you're looking at that, uh, you know, and it could be an essay. It could be, I mean, it, tell me if if I'm right here, we're on radio, so the other uh, people can't see you shaking your head. Yes, you're right. <laughs> That's it. I just wanted that on tape, Josh. All right, good. We'll use that again. No, I mean, so so we're not just talking about test scores. Right. They're using, they're actually creating trackers for particular purposes. Like another example is that the school gave a student survey, the Panorama survey, and they noticed a particular deficit around self-management. And they decided next year we're going to tackle self-management. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of social, emotional, co-academic skills mm-hmm. that kids need, but they were like, we're going to focus on, we're going to manage, we're going to make it manageable. We're going to focus on self-management. And then they took those questions from the survey, made their own rubric for every grade level to be like, here's what it looks like in second grade for mm-hmm. a kid this week to demonstrate self-management skills. Mm-hmm. And then on a weekly basis, they update this tracker to see which kids are moving in the right direction in terms of acquiring self-management skills in order to be successful in the classroom. All right. Well, Josh, the last question here, I guess, is for, for, let's say somebody out there is listening and they're saying, yeah, this sounds great, but in my school, it really is about the test all the time, you know, and it's the end of year test, of course, that we're stressed out about. And in between, we're taking a million of these formative assessments to find out how kids are doing and whether they're going to pass the test. And I just feel like it's just test prep, test prep, test prep. What, what would you tell those educators or their principals uh, about that strategy and you know, how they might try something different? I would say that as much as we've learned over the last three years when we've been doing this bold schools work, that we have not found once a school that was a bold school, which we say is a school that is closing the achievement gap. Their growth rates are for mm-hmm. low-income students are exceeding high-income students, and they're going to close the achievement gap. But not one of those schools do I hear anything about test prep. Mm. Not once. Yeah. It's really about the daily grind and how do we make that effective on a daily basis. I hear that education is a human driven earners, you know, industry. Yeah. 
And it requires kids to be motivated. And from what I hear from... Once the robots take all our jobs, it's all moot anyway. So what, what do we have? A decade or two to figure this out? In a process that has actually freed their educators up to be creative. Mm-hmm. That the school leaders trust their educators because those educators have a process of determining whether their creative solution to a challenge of educating a kid mm-hmm. work because... They are looking at that data on a weekly, daily basis. And the data that's so important is not just test data. It's not just giving them a million formative assessments. It's actually, you know, data, again, from, from teacher-developed assessments and essays and, the, you know, just the kind of stuff that kids, kids work. They, they, that's where they get this information yeah. from. Yeah, I mean, they're also using things like the Achievement Network assessments or the yeah. NWA map to make sure that they're overall on track but from a daily on a daily basis it's other information that they're using to drive those decisions all right messages we need to get out there much more better than we have all right hey josh boots again from empower k12 thanks so much for coming i do you're so far just working in dc are you ready to go national yet we have done projects in milwaukee and chicago Uh and we're looking to support Delaware soon. Okay. Then go, uh, you know, if you're somewhere in the country, you need help with this stuff. Sounds like Josh might be up for helping. Yeah. I mean, look, we know that there, our mission is to solve the achievement gap. Like we, we know it would take a little bit of money ball work to do that. Yep. And we're willing to help anybody who wants to get to that place as well. All right. Great. Thanks so much, Josh. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's research minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Just had a nice conversation with Josh Boots uh, here in Washington, D.C. Yeah, he knows a lot about Washington, D.C. Yeah, you know him from, uh, did he work Uh, with your charter school? I do, he worked with my charter school, helping us to crunch some data and make sense of it and get into all that stuff. He was very helpful to us. No, you know, look, I I think... uh, it's really exciting, especially once David and I figured out that what he was talking about was not, not what we were talking not, about. <laughs> well, not Oops. test score. Yeah. No, he's talking about data, data, data. But in his, yeah. that that's not, um, some of that is test score data. Yeah. From They're looking at the whole dashboard. Yeah. Dashboard no, is the and that they, that they find ways to collect lots of good stuff just from student work and from, you know, yes. teacher developed tests and, you know. Right. Which is all of it. great. Which yes. is what you want. Yeah, I can't tell if like what's going wrong in some places is that people are essentially making some version of the mistake that we made where we're like, they're taking data driven to mean you should test kids all the time, right? Constant. But yes. then when you yeah. hear that him happens. talk, that's right. That's not what it means. Look, you do hear that that there are some places out there that think that they are and that they're supposed to be doing it in response to intervention. Another, they're they're using the map every week or yes. the iReady every week for some Just kids. Just focus group. The teacher said fourteen tests she had this year for kids. I'm like, uh, I don't even have fourteen tests. Like, yeah, that's just crazy. That's like all of them. Yes. No, know. but so that is not the answer. Uh, you know, maybe, I mean, my kids do mat the map test three times a year. That right. seems reasonable. Now, it was not great when the spring map came right after the spring park, uh, but, you know, <laughs> and that somebody should our- do something about that. Because uh, they think they predict one another, but we don't really know that yet, yeah, do we? Yeah. We well, well, I know. But, but, but the point is, that is not what he meant. Mostly what he meant was information, other kinds of information. We should be very careful what we mean when we... Talk about data, but that is not what you're here to talk about, Amber. What are you here to talk about? I'm here to talk about different, some more data. So anyway, a new study out of Brigham Young University by Jeffrey Denning. Don't know that guy, but he did a really cool study. Checker wrote that uh, it was a sober analysis. He thought that was pretty funny because it was from Brigham Young. (laughs) 
Where he wrote that already? On, uh, like, it's not on Twitter, so he must have wrote that for Gadfly yes, or something. Yes. Uh, anyway, he asked, we're like, sounds like a great title, like a Fordham title. Why have college completion rates increased? Mm-hmm. Like that'll get you to read it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they use data from two nationally representative surveys from NCS, NELS 88, which tracks eighth graders in 1988 through 2000, and NELS mm-hmm. 2002, which tracks 10th graders in 2002 through 2012. Mm-hmm. Both surveys include student assessments in math in high school, which can be used as an indicator of college preparedness. Mm-hmm. And both surveys also have a gazillion background variables at the student and family level, Love like it. education of both parents, parental income, race, and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. They use a logit model to predict the probability of college graduation in both the NELS and LS samples. Mm-hmm. I think it gets a little weedy. I think they use the estimates in the NELS and the covariates in the in the LS to generate the probability model. Somehow they are they're kind of combining mm-hmm. them in creative ways. Okay. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is that they're able to see how much of the overall change in completion rates are due to various observable characteristics. Then they match the square. I got a little squirrely. They match observations across samples somehow mm-hmm. to then generate the effect of particular variables and how much they individually contribute to the change, mm-hmm. which is really hard to do. And by the way, we should stop and just remind people because this may not be well known. College completion rates have gone up quite significantly. Yes. And we're ta- are we talking about four-year rates I here? I am going to tell you that. Okay. Yes. All right. So, and 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 I've been looking at this data. I mean, it's impressive. I mean, it's depending on when you start the count. I, I was looking in one case, go, go back, say 25 years mm-hmm. and it's something like by 50%. And, and mm-hmm. for all racial groups about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, I think for African-Americans, like 46%, whites for 50%, Latinos yeah. is something like 110%. Wow. I mean, we have made Huge increases. Well, uh, we're we're going to throw a little shade on that in the study. All right. Imagine that. Okay. Uh, First, they document, like you did, Mike, that college completion rates have indeed increased after declining from the 1970s to the 1990s. They define those rates as the proportion of students who have obtained a BA within eight years in Mm -hmm. the study of expected high school graduation. Mm -hmm. And it's increased since 1990, specifically when combining all schools by weighted enrollment. The graduation rate increased from 52.0% to 59.7% and that was 1991 to okay. 2010. And those percentages are of what? That six, six the, year. Right. But of, of people who started college, is that what they're saying? Uh, That's probably what those are. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and I was just saying that you can also look at this as just of the population writ large. Ah, okay. Even people gotcha. that never went to college or you can look at that. Okay. Yeah. And those uh, were the figures I was referring to. Okay. Interestingly... The declines in the first 20 years coincide with the growth of the for-profit sector, where the rates are the lowest. Mm-hmm. Rates are the highest in highly selective private universities mm-hmm. and the top 50 public universities. Mm-hmm. And the patterns were the same in both samples. Mm-hmm. All right. Next, they turn to the various things that could explain the change that I just mm-hmm. explained, uh, including student characteristics like the ability level of the new entrants, because mm-hmm. our enrollment rose from about 69 to 78% mm-hmm. over that time period. And other things like whether students spent more time studying or working, Mm -hmm. the cost of college and institutional factors like student-faculty ratios that might Mm -hmm. contribute to the increase. A ton of stuff, okay? In a nutshell, none of these things explain much of the increase. In fact, they predicted graduation declines. Mm -hmm. Which probably, by the way, is in part because over this time, you have more Latino kids in the population, fewer white kids. a change in the enrollment, yes. Okay. Um, then they turn to a proxy for declining standards mm-hmm. in the form of first year college GPA. Mm-hmm. Descriptively, they show that college en- enroll- enrollees yeah, have lower math percentiles ranging from 58.8 to 55.9 over time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it went down. 
Um, despite, despite, despite this decline, <laughs> first year college GPA increased from 2.44 to 2.65. In other analyses, they show that after controlling for student characteristics, an increase of GPA of one point is associated with an approximately 24 percentage point increase in graduation. Mm-hmm. Then they control for all this other stuff, the graduation rate of their major. Mm-hmm. And then they use major fixed effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they find that the GPA is still highly predictive of college graduation. They find, too, that GPAs increase throughout the distribution of the full sample, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, moreover, it's a little factoid, 11% more students have a GPA above 2.0 in ELS 2002 than in NELS 88. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Their summary, quote, Put another way, equally prepared students with the same family income, parental education, gender, and institution type have higher GPAs in ELS 2002 than their counterparts in ELS 88. Uh, and then they, you know, then there's a discussion section. What's going on? What's going on? Uh, they say the focus on college completion rate seems a likely candidate um, that we've somehow perversely incentivized this now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also, last thing, they look into spending and they find that spending per student declined suggesting that colleges weren't spending more to help students graduate. Right. Oof. Grade inflation. Oof. You don't know that, Mike. Maybe our professors are just doing a <laughs> wonderful job. <laughs> I'm just saying that was their conclusion. Grade inflation. Yes. No, very interesting. Thank you, Amber, because yes. I, I want to understand this study and especially this idea that they were predicting that the completion rates would go down, yeah. which was a little surprising to me because, I, I mean, again, I think there is this, co- would you call it a, composition effect that uh, mm-hmm. you know again over this time we've had a lot more latino kids who on average are lower achieving mm-hmm. than the white kids they're also lower income so you know if you kind of break it out by race maybe there's something different but on the other hand the other big thing is you do see more uh higher parental education over this time mm-hmm. right more kids you know th- even with those declines in the past uh mm-hmm. you know you still do see over the two study periods more parents ha- went to college themselves right and so that i would think could have a Huge impact. I mean, I, mm. but again, I don't know how they did their predictive model that right. I guess they decided that, that maybe wouldn't have that big of an impact compared to these other factors. Yeah. Yeah. I, honestly, Mike, it was in the weeds. Once you got into yeah. talking about how they're, you know, when I, when I started saying they started matching across samples to get at mm-hmm. how these, each one had contributed to the decline. I was like, oh my, yep. you know, it's, it gets, woof. But do you notice it's the same question we have for high school graduation rates? Right. Where we've also seen this improvement where there are also accountability incentives, even stronger in high school uh, to get those graduation rates up. And we also have these worries about whether uh, districts or schools have responded by lowering the bar. Right. And the value of a college degree has, if I understand correctly, declined, although it is still a good deal. Yes. Right. It has declined. And there was a little discussion of the college wage premium in this paper, too. You know, what are we supposed to be making of that now with these data? Yeah. That sort of thing. Yep. Yep. And that I'm always confused by in a way in that does it matter? Would that have happened anyway just because more people are getting a college degree, even if we were able to maintain the standard? Uh, In theory, no, because in theory, people would be more productive and they'd be compensated Mm -hmm. for their productivity, right? But the fact that that seems so implausible to you. (laughs) (laughs) No, that would be great. Yeah. Okay, right, right. If it's not just a signaling yeah. Right. That, right. And then we do have that problem. A lot of employers ask for college degrees when they don't necessarily need them right. because they just use that as a screen. Right. All right. Yep. So uh, good. So maybe it's all not this. Not good. No, not, not good. good. Oh, sorry. Sorry. All right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. In conclusion, uh, perhaps this push at the higher ed level to uh, 
have accountability and funding incentives to increase completion rates uh, is not the smartest thing right. to do. Because we found, let's plug it, let's plug it. We found something very similar, right? When yes. Seth Gershenson did a report for us called Grade Inflation, what, three, yep. four months ago? That's right. Yes. And uh, in high school. In high school. Yes. So no, this is, this is happening. Look, nobody... There's no constituency for high standards. There's, you know, I mean, who wants to be the one to tell young people, no, I'm sorry, you haven't met the standard. I mean, it is such a hard thing to do. It's like people who don't want to have insurance companies that say no to people who, you know, but if we don't have a standard that is maintained, mm-hmm. uh, then these credentials uh, lose their value over time, right? And we give young people a false impression that they're ready for, for what comes next when they're not. It seems like we have, at least at the higher ed level, and I'm way outside my comfort zone here, right? But there's a very basic information problem here, right? Which is people are getting this message about college is good, which is an average, yeah, mm-hmm. right? And then that is informing people to go to below average institutions and get yeah. below average education, right? Mm-hmm. Somehow, I don't know. Either we're going to keep scamming kids, right? And they're just going to go to low, uh, low quality grad schools next, mm-hmm. right? right? Or at some point, we're going to solve that information problem and people will actually start taking the true value of whatever institution they're going into and whatever degree mm-hmm. they're getting into account. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but we're know. seeing these increases at highly selective institutions, right? Even after you control for all this yeah. other stuff. So it's like, yeah. you know, what's going hey, on? Hey, once the robots take all our jobs, it's all moot anyways. So what, what do we have? A decade or two to figure this out? I would say. Until <laughs> it doesn't matter? More or less, yeah. All right. Hey, on that optimistic note, that's all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapwise Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.